previously on areas of agreement. Studies have found that we are more divided in America today than at any point since the Civil War. I truly value having conversations with people about politics. And I've felt in the last couple of years, you just can't have those conversations as freely as we've been able to, just because of how polarized we've all become. People in cities do not understand how we live. And because they don't understand how we live, they look down on us. I was more conservative when I lived in Brainerd, and I don't think I was just highly irrational 10 years ago. I think there was something about the rhythm of the day of life out there and being in that community and hearing those messages over and over again that would lead a person to that conclusion. And, you know, the reverse of that being living in a place like Brooklyn would probably make you a little more liberal. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the urban-rural divide. People, you know, whose urban identity is very important to them or their rural identity and who come to form grievances on the basis of place. Well, those map on very clearly to the partisan landscape. And because of that sort of social sorting process, that contributes to polarization. The term polarization has come up a lot over the first 10 episodes of the series. Experts I've interviewed have decried political polarization, Democrats and Republicans moving further away from the ideological center. They're concerned about geographic polarization, where liberals and conservatives physically move further away from each other in what's known as the great sort. There's even been talk of social and economic polarization and the hollowing out of the middle class, all existential threats to American society. We're so polarized, the narrative goes, that we can't find common ground. Polarization hasn't made it onto Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year list, but over the last decade or so, it's certainly in that conversation. Which is why I'm dedicating an entire episode to the topic of polarization. Specifically the questions, what exactly is polarization? Is it always bad? It certainly seems to have a negative connotation, but is there such a thing as good polarization? Whenever I have questions like these I want to puzzle through, the first person I turn to is my good friend Alex Sussman. Alex has a BA in philosophy. He loves a good intellectual discussion. He's the kind of person who looks up the etymology of words and loves going down rabbit holes when there's a topic that interests him. I was hoping this one would, so I decided to give him a call. Hey, Elia. Alex, what's going on? I'm well. How are you, man? Good, good, good. Um, all right, so let's do some word association. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So when I say the word polarization, what do you think of? Sunglasses. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, well, uh, if you want to talk about politics, we can do that. All right. Yeah, that's more of where I'm going with this. All right, and Alex, you did a little research, I think. And so tell me, uh, what does the word polarization mean? Yes, I did. In a political context, polarization refers to the division of a group's opinion in two sharply opposite directions. Fun fact, one of my favorite journalist philosophers, Arthur Kessler, was the first to use the word polarization in reference to politics. Interesting. All right, Alex, we'll talk to you again shortly. 
Until then. Alex and I were ready for an even deeper dive on polarization. Specifically, we were curious about why we tend to become more polarized when we're part of a group. We set out to find a book about this topic. And it didn't take long for us to find the perfect fit. A title called The Philosophy of Group Polarization. We reached out to the book's authors, and they agreed to do an interview. But before we get to that conversation, I want to bring in Joe Bubman. He's the executive director of Urban Rural Action, the organization I've been following throughout this series. UR Action is all about bringing people together across geographical, political, racial, and generational divides to talk to each other and to take action. So I wanted to ask Joe straight away, is polarization one of the forces his organization is trying to fight against? Yeah, it is. And I think that polarization is a term that is widely used, increasingly used, and perhaps misunderstood, even, even by me at times, right? I'm, I'm thinking about, well, what do we mean by polarization? What we often mean, as Alex said earlier, is moving to the extremes, often the political extremes, and becoming increasingly hardened in our views. But Joe pointed to different types of polarization, like affective polarization. And what that means essentially is that you have a strong dislike of people who are affiliated with a political party that is different from your own, or who hold views that are different from your own. This is similar to negative partisanship, the concept that people are increasingly motivated by their dislike of the other party rather than affinity for their own. Another term to know is toxic polarization, related to the previous terms. But it's also about the hostility, the animosity, the hatred even, of people whose views are different from our own, and the tendency to caricature and lump together people who are affiliated with a political party or a, or a political side or tribe that's different from our own. And so absolutely, as an organization, our mission is to try to address that hostility, address that divisiveness, it's not about moving people away from their convictions as much, like to a, a center. That's not what we're trying to do. But it is about humanizing people across the ideological spectrum. It is about increasing people's intellectual humility. And it's about helping increase the respect that people have for people whose views are different from their own. But what happens when people deliberate with others whose views generally are not different from their own? What does polarization mean in that context? Alex takes up those questions coming up next. All right. Welcome, professors. In late spring, I sat down with two philosophers to discuss their book about group polarization. Yeah, I'm Fernando Broncano Brocal. I'm a researcher at the University of Barcelona. One of Fernando's research areas is social and political epistemology. Which is the field that deals with uh, the production and generation of knowledge and groups, uh, group disagreement, and uh, the topic of our book, which is group polarization. I'm Adam Carter. I'm a reader in philosophy at the University of Glasgow. And I'm the deputy director over here of the Cogito Epistemology Research Center. Adam also studies epistemology, the theory of knowledge. Broadly speaking, it's the study of methods of acquiring and verifying knowledge. Like Fernando, I've been thinking lately about questions in collective epistemology. How does the stuff that we think about in the case of individuals apply over in the case of groups? Just to start us off, 
how would you define uh, group polarization to maybe to a new student? We attribute beliefs to groups such as the Trump administration believes that climate change is not real. The jury believes that the defendant is innocent. Group polarization, it's a tendency of uh, deliberating groups uh, to incline toward more extreme positions than initially held by individual members. Yeah, I think in a lot of these cases, deliberation involves at least the, the sharing and pooling of evidence and the discussion of the evidence that the group has. Fernando and I, one reason we found this interesting as philosophers is that if you just step back for a moment and you think about sharing of knowledge and sharing of evidence, that sounds like a good thing. And it sounds like if you get a bunch of people together and you say, you know what, let's, let's pool all of our information together and let's talk about it and then let's reach a view. That sounds obviously like a good thing. But what we learned from social psychology is that it isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. So when like-minded people get together to pool and discuss their knowledge on a particular issue, the average view of the group members ends up more extreme after the deliberation than before. In a broad stroke, this is group polarization. This is a phenomenon that has been observed in many contexts, uh, including uh, group attitudes about racial issues, jury deliberation, chess moves. Contrary to the way group polarization is often talked about, especially like in popular media, it's usually described as a bad thing, right? Oh, the group is polarized. We're polarized. This isn't good. And we disagree with that part. We say that group polarization is as natural as the cases in which you have evidence to believe something and you become more confident. We clarify that polarization in itself is a, is a neutral phenomenon and certain things can make it epistemically good or epistemically bad. So group polarization itself isn't the problem. As Fernando explained, it's a natural progression from having a belief to being more confident in that belief. Problems occur when group polarization is, quote, epistemically bad, as Adam stated. Again, epistemology is the study of knowledge, so epistemically bad polarization would involve deliberations that lead a group away from true or more accurate beliefs and toward false or less accurate beliefs. To better understand the phenomenon, our philosophers first address what they refer to as the metaphysical question. Is the phenomenon itself, when we refer to group polarization, is it better understood as one of two different things? One, you think of as a collective entity that is irreducibly collective. So to characterize the phenomenon, you can't do it simply by adding up the contributions of the individual members. Sometimes group-level properties emerge not by adding up what the individuals do, but because the individuals interact in certain ways to bring about a group-level property. This is called non-summativism. And when we say sort of a group-level or collective-level trait, we're referring to that type of a trait. So summativism would be the idea that a group has a property only if at least one member has the property. So, for instance, we say that some political parties are corrupt. Should we understand this in the sense that at least one of the members of the political party are corrupt? Or is it possible for a political party to be corrupt even though none of the members are? Take another case. The police. Is it racist? Well, you can understand this in terms of perhaps the procedures and the rules within the police are racist, but none of the members are. 
or perhaps you can understand it in terms of, okay, most of the members are racist. And you can replicate this kind of discussion uh, for any group property, and you will have these two choices. Adam and Fernando are asking which of these two ways offer the best understanding of group polarization. There are arguments to be made for both the summativist and non-summativist approaches. Should we think of group polarization as a summation of the thinking and behaviors of the individual members? Or should we think of group polarization as a phenomenon that emerges from the interactions in the group? Our answer is that it is a group level property. So we think that it's not best understood by adding up either some combination of individual level vices or adding up some combination of individual level heuristics and biases. Adam and Fernando conclude that we can achieve the best understanding of group polarization as a group trait. That's the non-summativist approach. Here, Adam mentions vices, heuristics, and biases. These terms bring us to the next question, the epistemological question. Fundamentally, what kind of thing is group polarization in an epistemically good or an epistemically bad case? Is it a collective trait that is best described as a kind of heuristic or bias? This is one type of framework that you find for discussing where things can go wrong. A heuristic is a method by which a query can be efficiently answered. You can think of it as a mental shortcut. A good example of a heuristic is the saying, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. It works frequently enough to be useful, but it doesn't always give you the best answer, or even the correct one. Then there are biases. A bias is a predisposition to favor a particular answer, outcome, situation, etc., depending on the context. When we talk about cognitive biases, we're talking about the learned or inherent programming of our brains. One of the better-known cognitive biases is confirmation bias. That's the name for our inclination to pick out specific pieces of evidence which confirm our beliefs and ignore readily available disconfirming evidence. An entirely different sort of theoretical model within which to think about things going better epistemically or worse epistemically is individual level virtues and vices. Here, what we're talking about isn't the same thing as like a, a hasty generalization, which is an example of a cognitive bias, but rather something like close-mindedness. When I say that you're close-minded, I seem to be picking out a sort of more enduring character trait. So we have the epistemological question. As stated in their book, quote, is the epistemology of group polarization best understood in terms of a cognitive heuristic slash bias model, or else in terms of an epistemic virtue slash vice model? And our answer to that question is, it's more like a collective vice when it goes bad, and it's more like a collective virtue when it goes good. When group polarization tends to be epistemically good in the good cases, it's best understood with reference to collective level dispositions and thinkings and, and commitments than it is to tallying up the individuals with intellectually bad traits. But likewise, in the, in the bad case, that's best understood in terms of group level traits, including group level commitment. Adam and Fernando believe that the collective virtue-vice model is the one that best explains the phenomenon of group polarization. There were logical problems which confounded each of the other models. 
the collective virtue-slash-vice model was the only one which overcame these issues. So at the end of the day, we have at least presumptive support in favor of our proposal because it doesn't have the philosophical problems that the other views seem to have. Having come to their conclusions, Adam and Fernando got specific about how to, in their words, mitigate the epistemic pitfalls of group polarization. There are some rules of engagement such that people uh, are not falling prey to biases of all sorts, or they don't form beliefs on the basis of prejudices, but they just care about the evidence. We gave seven uh, what we take to be salient ways that a group can go epistemically awry. We give these as representative of things that can lead a group to polarize in a way that is not epistemically bad. One really obvious condition is our first one. If the average pre-deliberation belief is true or approximates truth more than falsehood. So if you take a group of folks that are deliberating about something and if they all start out with a bunch of mistaken assumptions about the topic, they're likely not going to be heading in as good a direction as if they all initially started with beliefs that were more on the whole true. And then, of course, there are other conditions such as reliably collecting good evidence. This is the second group commitment. If you have a group of conspiracy theorists, even if they have good evidence coming from scientific journals, they are very resistant to the evidence and they will probably have a very bad judgment about the evidence. The second group commitment also states that group members discard any bad evidence. The rest of the commandments, I mean commitments, are as follows. Number three, group members reliably and correctly judge the confirmational input of their private evidence. Number four, there is full disclosure of the privately possessed good evidence during group deliberation. Number five, group deliberation is not affected by any normative influence and is driven primarily by a generalized interest to ascertain the confirmational import of the evidence put on the table. This means that group deliberation isn't affected by social or economic pressures, for example. Surely not an easy achievement. The group should simply be committed to the veracity of the evidence. Number six, group members reliably and correctly judge the confirmational import of the evidence shared by other group members. One common example of this is appeals to authority. So you might have in a group that has a good piece of evidence and suppose that it's true from a reliable source, but the group mistakenly gives too much weight to the reliability of one particular expert that the group has received the testimony from. This isn't a case of bad evidence, and it might even be that they acquired it in a reliable way, but they can still go astray if they give too much weight to that particular piece of evidence relative to, say, evidence from other experts or other types of evidence. And finally, number seven. Group members reliably search for good evidence against their individual beliefs about the issue under discussion and reliably examine the most plausible ways to disprove them. Interestingly, Adam and Fernando say group members don't need to be experts on the subject matter for epistemically good polarization to take place. As explained in the Seven Commitments, they just have to commit to accurately weighing evidence from trustworthy sources and be committed to getting at the truth. Because sometimes finding credible evidence isn't enough. You wrote that one way to depolarize a group is to increase the diversity of opinion and competence. Can you explain how diversity of opinion and competence 
can depolarize a group and possibly aid in its ability to track the truth. Sometimes when you see opinion polls or surveys, there's something called like a, a Condorcet Jerry theorem that's used, which is the idea of aggregating a bunch of different opinions to try to um, get to the truth of the matter. In a simple case, how many, how many jelly beans are in, this, uh, are in this jar? If you have three people and you pool together their results, that's not gonna be as reliable as if you, if you have a thousand people assess the jelly beans. As you add the number of people that guess as part of your overall pool, the closer you get to the truth. The point about commitments to diversity kicks in in this way. If you have a bunch of people who are judging from the same background, this is a little bit complicated, especially in the case of expertise, because it seems like prima facie that you want to have just a group of all experts. But some of our findings that we looked at in social psychology suggest is that diversity actually contributes to the group increasingly converging on the truth. And what happens when conversations take place online? on social media and in group chats. Most often, it's chaotic, since there are few rules in place for deliberation. In these forums, it's rare for someone to emerge with a more accurate view. It seems to break almost every single type of rule that Fernando and I tried to give for appropriate polarization. I mean, if you think about the pooling of evidence, usually like the rules that are followed in those are the loudest, most confident people post the most, they selectively cherry pick their evidence, they use ad hominem. I mean, you can, you can go through and list and pretty much everything that all of our seven conditions don't seem to be satisfied in those cases. And it's unfortunate because that is one of the most common cases where collections of individuals tend to polarize, not in formally structured juries that are much, you know, these are much rarer than Instagram fights. So where does this leave us? We think that by discussing as we have not just psychological causes right, of group polarization, but the epistemology of group polarization and ways that we can polarize in epistemically good or bad ways, better understanding that can help us to better think about when we get in a group setting and deliberate something, uh, certain things to look out for. This offers a kind of guide map for going beyond just identifying causes of group polarization to thinking about how we can better achieve true beliefs as a group than false beliefs. Hey, Alex, I'm back. And I'm curious, what are your main takeaways from that conversation? Main takeaways? For me, it was great to see philosophical analysis used to get a better handle on the group polarization problem. It's a really important issue, and I think Adam and Fernando contributed greatly to understanding it. It turns out that polarization itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's totally natural. What's bad is when a group polarizes in epistemically bad ways. The seven commitments offer a strong foundation to keep any group on the path to truth. Thanks, Alex. Anytime. And I had one final question for Adam and Fernando. I was curious whether their findings about group polarization would apply to situations in which group members were not ideologically aligned. I'm thinking here about urban-rural action groups where there is usually some daylight between people's views. Fernando said that's a different situation. If you have groups in which uh, there is disagreement, what is likely to happen is that the group is not going to polarize or that the group is going to split. Split, that is, into subgroups. And those subgroups might polarize in different directions. Up next, I check back in with Joe about group dynamics and what he's learned about how to put groups in urban-rural action programs in a position to achieve their goals. 
After Alex's conversation with Adam and Fernando, I got to thinking more about my experience last year deliberating with a handful of people across the U.S. as part of Urban Rural Action's Uniting for Action America program. Our team, from what I could tell at least, didn't have major ideological differences. It was a pretty smooth ride as we went through months of discussions and event planning that finally culminated with an online forum about news deserts. My main takeaway, I guess, is that as a group, we all bought into the process. We didn't start out with any mistaken assumptions, we agreed to find and weigh credible evidence, and I can't really think of examples of relying on heuristics or falling prey to cognitive biases. I asked Joe in general whether he attributes the degree of success teams have with constructive dialogue and forming relationships and even taking action on societal problems to group-level or individual-level factors. He said both. The personality of group members, that matters. And also things like how much time and effort people put in and what expectations they have. Also, how the community partner the group works with balances their vision for the project with the group's own interests. Those are just illustrative examples of of variables, and it's really hard to figure out which of those is decisive. And I don't have an answer because I think it's probably a combination of all of those. One thing Joe is confident of is for the whole endeavor to work as planned, the taking action step is crucial. He points to something called the contact hypothesis. That suggests that you can promote tolerance and acceptance between groups that are divided and have dislike for each other by establishing common goals and having people from those groups work together to achieve those goals. That contact theory underlies so much of what we do because we believe that if you're going to build enduring relationships across divides in our highly politicized country, you need to work together. You need to achieve something together. Just bringing people together to work on something doesn't guarantee that it's going to be effective. I don't think we've cracked the code on how do you set up groups for success. It's going to be challenging. But Joe has some thoughts on what generally works. First, on the size of groups, he says about five or six people tends to work best. Groups larger than that, coming to a consensus, and even mundane things like scheduling meetings can be a challenge. With groups that are smaller than that, the risk is that not enough gets done, people can be stretched thin, and it's hard to get a diverse mix of participants. I asked Joe what exactly he means by diversity. Generally, there are four dimensions we look at, geographic, ideological, racial, and generational. Having diversity across all four dimensions sometimes isn't possible. The group I was in had generational and racial diversity. Ideologically, I'm not so sure. And geographic, well, I guess technically, but all of us were from big cities, so no rural members among us. Joe said anecdotally, groups that are more homogenous, particularly ideologically homogenous, find it easier to do a project together, to take some substantive action. But they don't find as much impact in terms of building relationships and addressing levels of respect or understanding of people with different views. What about after groups are formed? Joe says he wants them to establish their own ground rules, set their own expectations. So there's buy-in. UR Action does provide some structure, like an advisor, tools to brainstorm, and training on how to use the ABC approach to having constructive dialogue. Right, asking good questions, promoting curiosity, being open to different ways of seeing the problem, checking our understanding of views even when we don't agree. But I think it can go beyond that, like, you know, making sure that there's a, a roughly equal carrying of the load. Also, agreeing on roles, being clear about who's involved in making what decision making sure not just the loudest voices are dictating the outcome, and making sure the group can agree on how to resolve conflict. You know, 
are there some objective criteria that can be used to determine which path to move forward with when people's perspectives conflict? Another principle Joe likes is making sure group members are open to persuasion and open to evidence that others bring in. Also, agreeing in advance on what information sources are credible. Big picture, Joe says he and other program leaders try not to dictate how groups go about their work, but he also wants to make sure they have enough guidance. I think that we could afford to push a little bit more in the direction of supporting the process, right? Providing a decision-making framework, encouraging teams to have some checkpoints to revisit the principles or the ground rules they've agreed on. But he wants to do that with a light touch, making sure that teams still have autonomy to decide not just what challenges they address, but also what process they want to go through to get there. On the next episode, I look at generational diversity, one of the dimensions Joe mentioned that isn't talked about enough. Thanks for listening.